Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there. You're listening to New Books and Intellectual History, a channel for the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie, a PhD student at Northwestern University. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Sarah Igo about her truly wonderful new book called The Known Citizen, A History of Privacy in Modern America. It was published this year by Harvard University Press. The book is an ambitious dive into the history of a concept that seems to permeate everything, that is, the idea of privacy. Igo shows how privacy burst into political debate in the late 19th century and how Americans ever since have navigated that shifting line between the private and the public. Whether it was the rich and famous in the late 19th century pushing back against journalistic interests in their personal lives or gay Americans challenging expectations to be closeted in the 1970s and 80s, or government officials wanting to know more and more about its population. Privacy and citizenship have been linked in interesting and surprising and sometimes paradoxical ways. The book will be of interest to, among others, historians of technology, cultural historians, and media scholars. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with Sarah Igo about her wonderful new book called The Known Citizen. Thank you so much for writing such an engaging and rich book, Sarah. I really couldn't put it down. And thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks so much. And thank you for reading. I really appreciate it. And I'm uh, curious to hear what you um, took away from it and uh, and what you want to talk about today. Perfect. Well, we will discuss that. Um, so uh, we usually begin the show by asking our guests uh, how you became a historian. Um, what brought you to the field? That's a really interesting question. Um, I uh, don't have an easy or straightforward answer to that. Um, I suppose uh, I've always been interested um, in where uh, our common sense ideas come from. Um, and that, I suppose, was one path into history for me. The um, The other is that as an undergraduate, I studied social and political theory, which I was really um pulled in by and dazzled by in a way. But as I um, continued on in my studies, I um, I started wondering why um, were we learning this social theory and not something else and, and sort of how social ideas got traction in particular times and places. So that's the very short story of um, how I became an intellectual historian. But I've really been gripped by um, ideas like, um, well, uh, normality in my first book and privacy in this one, you know, where we um, get our ideas about uh, the contents of those concepts and how they change, even though we don't believe that they could have changed because they're so essential and basic to our ideas of who we are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Can you say a little bit more about what brought you to writing this specific book about privacy? 
Yeah, sure. Um, it's funny because I think a lot of people assume if you write on privacy, um, uh, either <laughs> you're kind of a privacy nut uh, yourself, which I am not particularly, I don't think, um, or um, that it's um, really out of presentist concerns, um, out of the kind of, uh, you know, cascade of crises and scandals and worries um, that we have um, learned uh, to think about, you know, a lot in the present. And really, I, I started writing about privacy or became intrigued in it. Um, for different reasons um, altogether. Uh, and it was really out of my first book where I was studying um, the role of statistics and surveys, uh, new kinds of data in the American public sphere. And just as a kind of sideline, I became interested in how conventions changed over what people would say to a stranger, you know, what a, a pollster or surveyor could ask people and how they themselves um, changed the uh, standard of what it was okay to talk about with someone you didn't know very well, uh, whether it was one's um, political opinion, as in the early opinion polls, or um, one sexual, you know, very intimate, uh, you know, details of one sexual behavior um, with the Kinsey reports at mid-century. So it was really out of a set of concerns that I didn't feel I um, adequately got to explore in my first book that I started thinking about privacy. And the more I thought about privacy, the more I realized how little we know, in a sense, of how privacy uh, became so central to American public life, how it um, infiltrated uh, kind of every corner of the public sphere by the end of the 20th century and beginning of the 21st, um, and really how little there was for a concept that's so important to how we think about ourselves, to our politics. Um, there was so little of a, um, a kind of textured historical um, uh, fashion uh, that was written um, about uh, privacy in general, uh, rather than as a legal concept or a technical concept or even a technological uh, kind of um, uh, obstacle um, to overcome. So, um, so I really got interested in um, that that contrast. I guess how important privacy seems to be to us, and how little we seem to know about its history or why and how it became important to us. Wonderful. And I was wondering if you could just say a little bit about um, what it was like writing this book um, compared to your first book, which, um, you know, came out of your dissertation. Um, were there differences in uh, how you approached it or um, differences in just the, the general feel of writing it? Yeah, it, it, you know, I joked um, for many years as I was writing this book that um, I needed a second book uh, support group uh, because um, the sort of infrastructure that anyone has in writing a dissertation, which is, of course, by no means easy, but there's a structure for it and there's time set aside for it, um, feels really different than writing a second book. Um, and particularly a book like this one, which um, had for me no arc, there was no archive. Um, and the more I studied privacy, the more I realized you can find it anywhere and you could take almost any topic in modern American history and approach it from a, a kind of privacy perspective, actually, uh, you know, whether that's the built environment or, um, uh, the, the history of social science, which was something I thought about a lot in my first book or, um, uh, yeah, physical space or um, the scientific research or um, policing or memoir writing or fiction. I mean, you could, you know, you could find it almost anywhere. And so I, I would say one of the things that was really interesting and challenging about it was trying to think about the right 
frame um, and to think about what I was going to include and um, what I was not going to include. I had that problem, of course, any historian does, any scholar does, in thinking about the bounds of their project. Um, but I had it with my first book, but that was a little different because I constructed it around specific instruments or studies. Um, and um, so I had to decide what those were, of course. But in this case, it seemed almost, um, you know, bound. the topic seemed so boundless. It seemed like there was no container that would adequately hold it. So that was part of my anxiety about writing it too, was that I felt like anyone could pick that book up and say, wait a second, um, why aren't, you know, I don't know, patients rights um, more centrally in this book? Because that's what I think about when I think about privacy. Um, or why are um, uh, certain kinds of cultural taboos or something like that not in here? Um, so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that and then ultimately deciding um, no writer could write everything there is to write about privacy. Um, and I would have to come up with my own um, uh, path or my own take um, that would help me, at, you know, I, I hope for some readers anyway, um, guide them through um, and, and help them think about privacy's history in a different way than they had before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's something that I was really impressed by about your book was how uh, it is a potentially boundless topic, but um, <laughs> you do manage to bound it in, uh, you know, a, a coherent and um, engaging narrative. Um, and uh, and that, that's that's a, a real task. I mean, the book could have been, you know, uh, twice the size. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's already too long. So <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your saying that. Yeah. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, so privacy is this ubiquitous um, uh, object or concept uh, or or debate. Even it's it's everywhere. Um, but historians have been relatively quiet in studying it. Um, can you say something about um, why that is? Well, I I think it's a topic that um, I mean, one, it is a little daunting, which is not to say you know, look, I took it on <laughs> at all, but it's hard to fit into some of our categories maybe that we use um, either our subfields or the categories that we typically use to think about um, modern American history. It's not a topic that aligns neatly with um, the kind of um, political frameworks, I think, that we have for the 20th century U.S., for example. Privacy was a value and a goal and a debate that was um, embraced in different ways by different people in uh, different kinds of positions um, and political had different political affiliations. And so it doesn't, doesn't line up with some of our other stories, particularly well, uh, which is one reason it's I find it interesting, but also um, at least the the way that I wanted to write this book um, required thinking um, across uh, different sorts of subfields um, that made it sometimes hard, not because um, of the number of them, but simply because I would feel that I couldn't. It, it was difficult to get deep enough into a particular area of, of more technical expertise, say privacy law, uh, either constitutional law or family law or what have you, but then to move out of that quickly to move on to something else that didn't have anything to do with it. So it felt um, a little bit like a juggling act. And I'm wondering, you know, late in the game, if that's the reason that, um, <laughs> you know, the other people didn't really want to try to tackle this. Um, <laughs> but I, I also think, you know, it's one of those um concepts that we're talking about a lot right now. But when I started this book almost um, 10 years ago, in conception anyway, um, it wasn't so obvious that there was um, there was a thing, a kind of cultural conversation maybe around privacy in the, in the way that's so obvious now, um, or that there was anything um, quite particular maybe about our own moment that would... Um, 
that would alert you to the fact that it might have a different kind of history. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure that's true. I mean, uh, a decade ago, of course, people, as they have, you know, for centuries, you know, people have worried about privacy, but the sharpness of the debate right now feels different. Um, and so, you know, so I think that's one thing. And and if I were starting the book today, I also might have had a different um, kind of frame for it. A lot of the work that's coming out now on privacy is about the kind of technological uh, challenges or the commercial um, sorts of side, uh, data mining and so forth. But that wasn't quite on the horizon in the same way um, when I started working on the project. Um, so that being said, uh, you do start the book in the late 19th century uh, and you you spend a lot of time thinking about um, technologies and uh, new practices um, that fundamentally change the way privacy is uh, conceptualized and perceived. Um, can you say something about this moment uh, and <clears throat> and like what exactly changes? Um, I'm especially interested in the postcard. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great, uh, that was a great detail to find. Mm-hmm. The um, I think what's new in the late 19th century um, are a couple of things. Uh, one is a new kind of um, public presence of privacy in political debates. Um, again, privacy is not as if privacy was invented, right, uh, in the late 19th century in any sense, but it has a new kind of um, presence uh, in uh, public talk. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, another is that it seems to be shifting in the late 19th century, and you can see this across um, a number of different kinds of media, uh, sound technologies, uh, photography, advertising, um, the tabloid press uh, or the broadsheet press. Um, You can see privacy um, becoming less of a kind of physical um, uh, concept or or having a a physical boundary to it, um, a property boundary to it, and more, it it becomes more porous and um, less containable um, as a concept, um, by which I mean uh, issues of image and reputation um, of, um, of personality are starting to be talked about in terms of privacy. So in that sense, it was a good starting point for me, uh, because uh, it seems to usher in, um, it's really the beginnings of our modern ways of talking about privacy. It's something that's not just about um, the threshold of one's home um, or even one's physical self, um, but um, is about these um, much less uh, tangible matters of um, self um, in all the different ways that we imagine that um, that thing to be. Mm. Great. And so uh, I want to jump to another moment um, in your book um, that really blew me away. Uh, And uh, I I must confess that I actually saw you present this at um, the Policy History Conference uh, a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so I was really taken aback um, uh, when you were presenting this um, back then, but then you've obviously elaborated on it since. Um, and that's the moment in the 1930s when um, social, the Social Security um, Administration um, is uh, developed, the Social Security number is implemented, um, and f- you do a really good job of removing our 21st century goggles, uh, and you take seriously what the historical actors, um, you know, own cultural understandings of privacy were. And so, um, uh, you know, whereas today 
the idea of being numbered is seen almost in a, a dehumanizing way. In the 1930s, there was, um, as you write, uh, a fear in an age of increased social provision of being unidentifiable. Uh, can you just uh, share with our listeners uh, some of the ways people perceived the social security number, um, how they, uh, you know, remembered it or um, showed it off even on their bodies, um, and uh, how these privacy debates um, uh, shaped the implementation of the Social Security Administration? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for that. Um, the work on the social security number was also one of my favorite parts of this book and the most interesting pieces to research. Um, of course, I went into this book thinking that there must have been a huge debate about social security numbers um, as a privacy concern in the 1930s, um, you know, really thinking as a citizen of the 21st century. Um, and one of the things that was so striking was to see in um in advertisements, in um, kind of the realm of humor and public opinion, in fiction, um, all over the place, in commerce, um, the fact that uh, people, many Americans, I don't, it's hard to say most Americans, but many Americans um, seem to actually very quickly embrace the idea of having a bureaucratic number. And not only that, but that they prized those numbers, um, not just as access, I think, to um, future benefits or something like that, but as a kind of um, a proof of recognition uh, from the state, um, uh, uh, proof that they were a citizen in a, a, a generous uh, republic, one that was going to um, take care of them in some way uh, during the Depression and beyond. And so, uh, so it was just fascinating um, to discover, uh, you know, all kinds of businesses that cropped up in the 1930s: um, uh, jewelry, uh, rings, bracelets, um, luggage tags, uh, chrome plates, uh, uh, kind of um, uh, keepsakes um, that people paid for, again, during the Depression, um, to hold on to their Social Security number and to do that in a way um, maybe that seemed more um, uh, significant than having a paper, just a paper card in their wallet. Um, and, and doing that um, research and, and discovering these uh, kind of material artifacts of people's um, relationship, I guess, uh, to their social security number was a really helpful check to me in thinking about um, changing conventions about privacy. It was true then as it is now that a social security number uh, was an index to all kinds of sensitive information about one's, um, you know, address and employment history, possibly health uh, and so forth, um, family relationships. Um, but people really for the most part, seem not to worry about that. Uh, they trusted uh, the federal government to house that information and to use it, you know, to their benefit. Um, and that would really only change very slowly. Uh, it doesn't really change until the 1960s for reasons having to do with computerization, but also, of course, um, new uh, found uh, distrust in the federal government. So it was a really useful episode um, for me as a historian, um, to think about my own uh, assumptions about what uh, was, you know, in the public column and what in the private column in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, it's also, uh, you know, like really remarkable that, um, you know, well, how quickly the the idea of having a, like your own number tattooed to your body, the cultural dimensions of that change quite quickly after the yes. Holocaust, right? 
Yes, yes. And I should have mentioned, right, the tattoos, which are the most kind of striking um, piece of this and which, you know, uh, people certainly have known about. Uh, Dorothy Lange has this really beautiful uh, photograph um, of, uh, um, you know, a man with uh, his social security number on his bicep in one of her uh, depression camp uh, photos. But but I was really surprised by how um, widespread the practice seemed to be. It was a kind of joke. It was, uh, uh, you know, and, and not only, you know, that has privacy implications, of course, uh, because anyone could see that number, but also the fact that people were, you know, showing off their numbers on their bodies to other people suggests something about the the really material, (laughs) you know, way in which they thought about these numbers and prized these numbers. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and just to jump forward a little bit uh, into the post-war era, uh, you... You, you again take off like, you know, our 21st century goggles of, you know, like um, being really concerned with state surveillance and so on. And you show how in the like the late 40s and the 50s and into the 60s, um, the biggest threat to the individual's privacy um, was not so much coming from the state, but rather from from prying people such as like psychologists or neighbors um, into uh, the uh, the individual's interior. So, you know, the individual's mind, thoughts, emotions. Um, and so like, why was privacy talk so focused on this rather than state surveillance itself? Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a really interesting puzzle. And it's, um, it's one that um, I think, has a couple of answers. I mean, I think one, um, the state surveillance apparatus, um, insofar as people knew about it, and obviously people knew about the most obvious parts, outcroppings of it um, in uh, HUAC uh, hearings and so forth, um, wasn't necessarily something that uh, ordinary citizens thought that they would be directly impinged uh, upon by. And so um, it it may be partly that um, the kind of attention to psychological infiltration which has, of course, a kind of communist and surveillance pieces to it, but it's not all it was. Uh, it may be that the attention to kind of the new psychological instruments and so forth seem more pressing, more um, uh, threatening in some ways because they were so common. Um, one of the things that seemed clear to me after doing the research for that piece of the book was that um, the age of psychology, you know, brought Americans many benefits, but also really came with this uh, price of um, worrying that pe- that one's own interior uh, was less stable than one thought. You know, and you can see that across a really a wide swath of social thought um, and also of practice. Um, uh, in this period, in employment testing, uh, the, the kind of vast um, uptick of uh, psychological testing in the schools and workplaces, um, in fears about um, motivational research and um, marketing research that was using psychological tools to uh, both to sell and to understand consumers um, in ways um, uh, that were much deeper than people had believed possible before. So this kind of um, uh, sense of uh, leaking uh, interiors or something like that seemed to kind of pervade many different spaces in the society. Um, and again, was not just abstract. Um, it was happening, um, you know, uh, in the kinds of um, instruments that were being used in school and at work, um, such that um, many, many more Americans were exposed to these kinds of tools that, you know, often in an inflated way, suggested that they knew more about you than you did, you know. Um, and I think that was very threatening to a, a certain kind of 
um, idea that many uh, citizens had about themselves as having a kind of contained um, interior, a public face and a private one that were separable and separated. Um, but uh, here were now all these tools and experts telling them um, that they, they weren't so easily, um, they weren't so easily uh, divided um, nor um, concealed. So the, the kinds of secrets that one might be able to keep from an employer or from um, a teacher, uh, say, uh, were, uh, you know, were vanishing. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I, I think that um, that chapter is, is so interesting because it shows, yeah, just like how this, uh, you know, like liberal autonomous uh, individual mm. uh, is, it's, it's constantly being like, leaked into society, um, the, the barrier between the, the self and the social is porous. I was really fascinated by it. And also, yeah, just the, uh, again, like, you know, this is the, the time when 1984 is being written, um, but yet, like, the discourse is not centered on what we expect it to be centered on. Yeah, right, right, right. It seems so trivial at one level to be mm -hmm. worrying about, um, I don't know, telephone surveys or personality tests yeah. when these major um, invasions of privacy that I think we would all agree are infractions, right, are mm -hmm. being conducted by the U.S. state. Um, but it, you know, again, um, the, the very mundaneness and um, and regularity of these kinds of incursions may have been more worrisome and also maybe at some level more controllable, right, by the individual citizen than something that's going on in secret uh, by um, or covertly by their own government. Um, so one other interior that I would uh, love for you to just briefly um, share with listeners is um, the the, the post-war suburban home. Um, and here you gather evidence from, um, you know, like from what architects are saying um, to what, uh, you know, Betty Friedan is saying and the femi fe uh, feminine mystique. And uh, I, yeah, I, I was just, again, really taken aback by the discussion of privacy within the home and then also within suburbia. Sure. Um, suburbia has been a place that uh, it has been assumed, uh, you know, Americans retreated to for a number of reasons, but one of them was to, you know, get more privacy. Um, but of course, what we know from social criticism at mid-century was that uh, people didn't get the privacy that they wanted, and in fact, didn't always seem to want the privacy that they thought that they wanted. And so I wanted to put together what we knew from social criticism of the period and um, the kind of material evidence from home construction, from builders, what they were hearing about window size and uh, privacy screens and landscaping and things like that um, to think about why privacy became such a an important um, meaningful issue in suburbia not to assume that these were private places or they couldn't be private places but more what the cultural discussion about privacy mm -hmm meant. Um, and it seems to me, uh, it, you know, it follows on what we were talking about earlier a little bit, that the problem was this problem of the interior, which was not going to be solved by suburban walls, right, or um, private bathrooms <laughs> in mm -hmm. the suburban home, which was a, a kind of, uh, you know, invention of this period, too, to have multiple bathrooms for different members of the family, or for guests versus family members, say, um, that it wasn't going to be solved um, by this uh, kind of um, material um, a privacy uh, barrier or something like that. Um, it was really a social problem, and the problem was um, that uh, all kind there were all kinds of new ways of um, knowing people of being revealed, and um, and this was a problem for the a notion of selves as contained and closed off and uh, knowable only when they wanted to be known. Um, mm. 
This is an era in which it becomes uh, widely understood how easy wiretapping is, uh, an old uh, an old technology actually, but that gets all kinds of new press during this period, where new um, technologies of uh, sort of bugging and listening in, and even um, telephone uh, lines, you know, for personal use, um, seem to be more invasive in all kinds of ways. So, um, so this. The idea of, uh, of a kind of material solution to what was a, a more existential or social problem uh, was what really fascinated me about the suburban discussion. Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting. Just moving ahead a little bit, um, it seems like Vietnam or the Vietnam War uh, and Watergate um, serve as transformative moments in um, the history of privacy. How did these events um, change the cultural and political meaning of privacy? Um, yes, I think that's right. That um, the seventies, I do see. Well, the later sixties um, and seventies uh, seem like a, 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 a very long, uh, you know, but very significant, pivotal moment for thinking about privacy in the United States, and not always for the reasons you would expect. I mean, we we might think that um, both Vietnam and Watergate it would be because um, of state uh, actions, right? A state that seems uh, to be unbounded in its um, kind of capacities to do what it will <laughs> with citizens, right? Whether it's their tax records, uh, you know, uh, or uh, domestic surveillance, or or even, you know, uh, sending, uh, you know, unwilling, uncompliant people off to war. Um, but what s- struck me in looking at that period um, was the way that um, turning um, the, the citizens' alertness uh, to state um, surveillance, say, uh, had really uh, interesting effects. Um, it led to um, w- more watchdogs, of course, and wanting more supervision over the state um, and its agents, as well as other social institutions. Um, but it also led to uh, kind of calls for transparency. Um, and those calls for transparency didn't end with, you know, having politicians reveal their um, financial um, uh, details or something like that. Um, it uh, crept into all other uh, areas of the society, into documentary filmmaking, into commercial television, into uh, reportage, of course, uh, investigative journalism, but also into kind of personal uh, relations and into uh, people um, uh, only, um, uh, re- you know, feeling that they had to uh, reveal their real selves, whether that was politicians or just ordinary citizens. So this a language of transparency, which I think started as accountability, um, wound up having much uh, deeper, uh, more thoroughgoing effects um, as uh, time passes. Um, so, and you know, this this is where it gets really complicated, and it's and hard to summarize. Is that if there were social movements pushing in this direction, um, uh, and in concert, you know, these things had effects that. I think, uh, you know, surface later in the 80s and 90s and what people called confessional culture, but we're not, that was not the aim uh, of any of it in the beginning. Um, so so it's a really interesting and complex story. But I do think um, you're right to, to pinpoint that era as one in which the discourse around privacy changed, who could participate in it, uh, what privacy was thought to be hiding, right? Government secrets, but also certain kinds of um, male and um, heterosexual privilege in the society, um, and um, and and you know we're still feeling the effects. Yeah, I I, I actually want to uh, talk about that a little bit more um, because one thing that um, I 
I, I, I learned about, the, uh, you know, while reading your book was just how um, social movements or um, movements um, for, you know, the marginalized and oppressed would often identify privacy and a right to privacy as um, sort of like a, a, a way to advance towards full citizenship. Um, and that's a, it, it's, it's a really interesting and in some ways odd um, uh, thing to center on. Mm -hmm. um, but I was just, can you just say a little bit more about that? Like who was insisting on the right to privacy um, and why did they see it as a, a route to citizenship? Yeah, um, this was, you know, I, I called this book The Known Citizen um, because it did seem to me uh, in ways, some obvious, some not so obvious, that uh, citizenship and privacy are really intertwined um, in the American context, for sure. Um, that privacy, um, though uh, a constitutional right in certain respects after 1965, was always thought of as a kind of entitlement for the most entitled people in American society, um, right? To, to have your affairs be your affairs rather than um, the states, but also, um, you know, other parties um, was a kind of privilege. And it was uh, what allowed uh, for democratic citizenship. And it was what allowed for um, a kind of latitude in society, right? Uh, um, a, to be able to draw your own boundary around your affairs and what you want to be known about you. Um, and so um, it, it has a kind of class uh, tinge to it, uh, for sure, uh, upper middle class and certainly uh, a white uh, tinge to it in the 19th century and gradually uh, becomes a kind of um, democratic uh, entitlement, um, if you will, uh, as more and more citizens uh, claim privacy for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, though, you know, there are really interesting twists in the story. And one of the most interesting is what happens in the 60s and 70s when um, feminists, um, um, but then also uh, gay Americans start um, seeing privacy itself as a, having a kind of politics and um, shielding some people uh, and their actions, uh, most famously in the uh, women's liberation movement to name um, the domestic sphere as a place that covered up all kinds of domination um, and violence. Um, but, um, but also in the gay liberation movement, when privacy, right, the privacy uh, rhetoric of uh, kind of middle class respectability was that sexual affairs should be, uh, you know, kept under wraps and shouldn't be visible. And this was what, of course, the gay liberation movement would challenge mm -hmm. in making sexuality um, uh quite visible um, in the 70s and beyond as an explicit kind of protest against a certain kind of privacy. So I suppose the notion that um, there were different kinds of privacy um, uh, and different um, uh, people benefiting in different ways from screens of privacy or the ability to exercise privacy was a kind of um, political discovery of the 60s and 70s that really challenged um, uh, older ideas uh, about it being a kind of single, singular uh, sort of entitlement that everybody was just trying to get more of. Um, and um, and you can see, I think, that even in um, the post-70s um, kind of cultural after effects in the ways that um, debates over, say, um, memoirs and confessional literature in the 80s and 90s and beyond, and even the kind of self-broadcasting happening on websites really unsettles this idea that there is sort of one standard of privacy or that privacy um, is something people seek rather than um, seek to demolish in order to um, advance certain kinds of social agendas. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, I mean, uh, there's, there's, there's so much about that that I, uh, that I learned. And I, I, what I really appreciated was like your use of, uh, I mean, just like taking these slogans that, um, everyone, you know, has some familiarity with, but then reading them through the lens of privacy. Um, so, you know, like out of the closet and into the streets, um, for instance, just, uh, mm. yeah, just these things that have a different, um, valence to them after, uh, you know, going through this longer history of privacy. And so as we're um, approaching the end of the book, I mean, there's, again, so much that uh, we uh, have not even touched or discussed. Uh, mm. um, you know, for instance, the An American Family, the basically the first reality TV show in the 1970s, which for me, you know, born in the 1980s and growing up with uh, um, Survivor and, <laughs> and so on, <laughs> I, I, I really appreciated. And then also like the 1990s with um, the, um, the focus on like President Clinton's um, personal affairs at the at the center of politics um there's just so much in this uh um like the the last few decades that we really didn't even touch but i was wondering if you could say something about what this longer history of privacy um that you've been telling uh can say about some of the contemporary discussions that we're having today um whether it's with um you know like facebook's privacy uh rules or um uh, things of that nature what what does this what does the knowledge of this longer history um what can it teach us about our present moment a big question yes but yeah. a really important one um <laughs> and um i have been thinking about that a lot as you will imagine um what what at the end of the day i think um history is good for here is um delivering us a more complex sense of the social debate that we've had about this issue for a long time. And the technologies changed, the circumstances, the politics have changed, but there's been an ongoing social dialogue, uh, sometimes philosophical dialogue too, about how, um, how much uh, um, of a division can there be, should there be, uh, between individual citizens and the society that they live in. Um, and I think one thing the history helps us see is why and how we've gotten to where we are right now because of the calculation that's been made again and again that it's better to know more mm -hmm. <laughs> about citizens, whether for uh, the purpose of, you know, just human understanding or scientific research or selling more effectively or um, knowing and administer knowing citizens to administer benefits you know there's been that the while the history is incredibly you know kind of colorful and varied and um, uh, multifaceted the the kind of core tension um, is is the one that we are asking in a different way uh, now but it's you know how much do we want to um, give up of a certain notion that we have of a an inviolable personal sphere mm. for the society to work more efficiently, for government to know us better, for national security to uh, protect, uh, you know, us, um, as we imagine, uh, you know, better, uh, um, or to uh, reap the kind of, uh, you know, conveniences of uh, a an ever more knowing uh, <laughs> commercial society, you know, mm -hmm. um, so I think um, there are obviously no answers um, in this book to that question. But I but I do think it helps us to understand that 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 is the question. It's not a question of, you know, privacy on the decline, that we've lost something that we used to have. Um, 
it's not a question of all of a sudden, you know, these technologies are there and, um, you know, we had no warning or no sense that, um, you know, we were going to face this moment where Facebook can know so much about us and share that information with unknown others or the government or whomever um, is, you know, so, so there's, there's a, a really long, rich, complex history of um, asking questions about this and trying to come to solutions, whether those solutions are um, in the realm of law or in the realm of norm arms or in the realm of kind of daily practice. Um, and I do think knowing that history is helpful in um, trying to think through the challenges of the present, but also to start thinking about the things we haven't even anticipated mm. yet. Great. Uh, well, so that's that, a long and indirect, yeah. very indirect <laughs> answer to that question. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a, yeah. yeah, sorry, go on. Right. Well, I was just going to say, but that, you know, in a way, you know, the Facebook um, Cambridge Analytics scandal or the, um, you know, that all the revelations coming out about the ease with which, you know, matching can occur through DNA uh, data banks uh, or what have you, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Equifax, whatever it is, you know, shouldn't exactly um, surprise us given um, the, the uh, um, kind of, again, long kind of social entanglement that our knowledge about us has with the social institutions we live with. And mm -hmm. so, um, so it's thinking about whether we want to readjust that um, mm -hmm. balance and if we can at this point, you know, or is the cat out of the bag? Mm -hmm. Wonderful. I think that's a perfect way to end our discussion of your book. And we always end our show with a question about what our guests are working on right now. Ah, great. Okay. Um, well, so I am working on, I actually got so interested in um, the social security number debate in the 1930s and 40s that I'm now working on very early stages of a book about um, uh, about social security and about um, social security and American life and specifically about those numbers and, and the, the history that, that follows on from the history that I um, tell here. But I'm also um, more generally working, I guess, um, in this area that I guess I'll call um, data history, thinking about the mm -hmm. history of different kinds of data and forms and how they have um, reflected on us and also helped us reflect about um, life in um, uh, the modern United States. Wonderful. I can't wait to read um, both of those. Um, and uh, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks so much, Dexter. It was really a pleasure to talk with you. Great. And you've been listening to New Books in Intellectual History, a channel with the New Books Network.